You want to talk about tree law? Well, we had to implement tree law. Yeah. It doesn't come up that, or maybe it does come up. Not no, for me, at least. It com- I mean, the, for the office, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Tree issues are major. But this was one of the biggest. This was definitely. It doesn't make national news every <laughs> every day. No, but it makes makes our inboxes every day. Sure. So, so your district borders Universal Studios. Universal Studios is on its own property. That's county land. That's Universal City. Yes. But it's surrounded by... Multiple council districts, not just mine. Two different council districts, but part of it borders your district. Yes, that's right. And last week, there was a a tweet released by uh, by a writer... That's what we do with tweets. A writer named Chris Stevens... Showing that some trees that writers and actors had been picketing one of the gates at Universal Studios under had been aggressively trimmed. Very aggressively. Yes. And so the, the, the shade that the trees had been providing was no longer available to the writers and actors. It was perceived as an, an intentional act by Universal Studios. I saw the picture... I didn't identify where the trees were. I thought they were in Council District 2. I was like, oh, that's going to be a tough issue for them to deal with. <laughs> nope. And so I was like, no, that's the one gate yes. at Universal that's in CD4. Okay. And then talk about the detective work to find out exactly what happened. Well, we got a bunch of inquiries asking whether we had trimmed the trees. Mm-hmm. And we said no, and we'll find out, you know, who was responsible, whether they're on Universal's property, whether they were on, they were city trees. Yeah. And apparently Universal trims the trees every year. And we reached out to the forestry, um, urban forestry and said, did they get a permit for trimming these trees? And apparently they had not gotten a permit for trimming these trees. So the city had not approved these trees to be trimmed at this time. They hadn't even asked whether they could trim the trees at this time. Which you can do for a city tree. If you're if you have yeah. the adjacent property, oh, yeah. you can file a permit. You can hire a contractor to do it yourself. Yes. Uh, that's all. You just have to let the city know and get permission. They didn't do that in this case. And it definitely was noticed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it blew up. It blew up in a big way. But I learned a lot about. Tree law. Tree law. Yeah. Tree science. Um to talk about trees for a few days. I thought this is our second episode. Uh-huh. We were talking about what would be interesting to do sort of a deep dive on in episode two, because that's what the, with this format, we can go a little deeper into stuff. Okay. And we talked about just going through the entire process of how somebody gets from being on the street, being a, a unsheltered, experiencing unsheltered homelessness to getting all the way into permanent housing. And it's a process that is very long and involved in a lot of cases, but it's one that the city is really involved in now at every single step. The city is involved in, but mm-hmm. sometimes feel like feels like it has very little control over. But yeah, we sure. we engage with this process at every step. Right. Sometimes we're the primary actors and sometimes we're dealing with these big bureaucracies that are supposed to be moving us along in this process. And it can be very, very frustrating, but it is a very long process. It feels like a maze and it took me a long time to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think it would be really useful for people to understand how hard it is to move from a tent into a home. 
and maybe how it's changed, how this process has changed over the last few years, which it has changed a lot when you and I were just doing this as volunteers, I would say the process was so slow and remote as to not even be visible to us. Almost nobody who we were working with in 2017, 2018 was certainly not getting into a city shelter, which didn't exist really at the time. Uh, and it, getting into housing was kind of few and far between. There was one person. Who are you thinking of? I can't remember her name, but okay. she came back. I remember that she used to come to the shower program. Yeah. She used to have a meal. Mm-hmm. She used to take a shower. Mm-hmm. She used to watch a movie. And then after she got housed, she came back and donated to the shower program. Yes, I do. Yes. You remember, I remember that? Her. Yes. And but she I want to say the- that that was 2019. Something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was that, 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 that was, yeah. Because we had already been doing the shower program. We didn't start that until 2019. We knew one person. Yeah. We knew one person. So in, in talking about this process, I think just to set how this works for a lot of people, and, and we're the kind of person that we're talking about in, in the population of people who are homeless, most homelessness is, is what they call self-resolved. Right. Like most people who end up without housing get out of that situation without having to engage the system at all. Right. Right. And there's so many of those people and we don't even see those people. They're not people who are living in tents for the most part. part, Yeah. They usually are living in a vehicle if they're living Mm -hmm. on the streets at all. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes in somebody's garage. Mm -hmm. Um, couch surfing, the LAUSD system, which counts homelessness in a different way, counts people who are couch surfing as homeless. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when you're couch surfing, you'll find a home and you'll move into it and you've resolved your own uh, instance of homelessness. Mm-hmm. Even like motels, people that are just like putting together a few days at a time in a motel between stable housing, technically homeless, but not people that the system ever really engages no and it's like if you had a falling out with your family you have a a temporary financial issue things like that but most people get back indoors without engaging the system at all and we're also not talking about the type of person who their next step from the street is some kind of intensive health mental health treatment something like that it's a smaller percentage of the population but they're not going through the no system in this in this way. way no the people we're talking about are on the street, uh, for whatever reason, cannot navigate their way out of homelessness by themselves, but are interested in getting indoors as soon as possible, which is, I would say, probably like 30, 40% of the people that are homeless overall. But almost everyone that that I meet and that we have met like out on the, I would say like 80, 85% of the people that you meet at encampments and things like that fit into this category. And this is mostly when we talk about homelessness in the city, this is mostly who we're talking about. Yeah, they're the most visible. They're probably on the streets for the longest. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that most people recognize in their neighborhoods um, and see around over a long period of time. So, yeah, this is when you think about homelessness in Los Angeles, this is the kind of person you're thinking about. Yeah. So step one, I think. For someone to get indoors, you're on the street, you're in a tent or your car, is getting connected to the system in in some way, really getting found by the system. And this is, I think, harder than a lot of people think. Totally. 
Uh, we've we've yeah. discovered that in our district. Like when I first started in office two and a half years ago, two and a half long years ago, mm-hmm. um, we were going out to encampments in the district. We had people on the team who were really focused on homelessness already right at the beginning. And what we found was that a lot of the encampments were had people in them that had never seen or met an outreach worker during the time that they'd been experiencing homelessness. Were interested in housing. They were had all been there for years. Yes. And had not spoken to an outreach worker. And in certain geographies in the city, it's even more pronounced. So we had to do an entire project that was focused on the LA River because it's so hard to get out there mm-hmm. that outreach workers do not regularly go there. And often outreach workers go to a location because you're called there through LA Hop, which is the system that you use to report an unhoused person in your neighborhood, or a police officer calls you, or a council office calls you. But if you're living in the LA River, there's not going to be a lot of people who are clamoring to let the system know that you're right. there necessarily. And so no outreach workers went out there. So we when we went out to do research along the stretch of the LA River that's in our district, we realized that most of the people there were seen even less by the system. Right. They simply had not been encountered or found at all. Mm-hmm. And we had to develop a whole program to fund specialized teams that could work just in the river so that we could make Get that to happen. step one. That's just that make step. That, yeah, just that make that step connection. one happen. Yeah, exactly. Even for us, a lot of in some parts of the river, there's a gate with a lock on it. And, you know, to get there, you have to walk along the side of the highway or hop a spiky fence and things that we can't do and certainly can't ask like a case management team to do. And so we'd have to get sanitation or someone else who has the key to come out. And like sometimes they'd have the wrong key. It was okay. We'll try to reorganize everyone for a different date. Uh, It can just be a really involved process. I also think like for some people, being in kind of an out of the way place, it's a choice that you make where you're when you're choosing where to set up. Being out of the way, you can you're not harassed by as many people, and like you're you're sort of left alone. And in some ways, you can feel safer from anyone who might be coming by with any kind of bad intentions. But that leads to just not getting noticed. Yeah, about. not being in this, not being recognized mm-hmm. in the system at all. And it's interesting because we have. I've seen now some heat maps of where the city's complaints about homelessness are coming. Yeah. Right. And the complaints about homelessness that are filed through programs like 311 or going to council offices, these complaints actually do generate outreach going out there oh, yeah. from the broader system. Right. And if you look at where the complaints are coming from, they're coming from the wealthiest districts and they're coming from the most visible thoroughfares. They're coming from the main boulevards that people are traveling. They're not coming from districts that are significantly poorer. They're not coming from places that are hidden away and yet have a large population. Um, And so we really have a system that's driven by visibility and driven by complaints and still, I think, unable to actually get encounters between outreach workers and people experiencing homelessness regularly to happen across the entire city. Even uh, along the main thoroughfares, I met a guy in Ventura who uh, was sleeping along Ventura and he uh, talked to him. He'd, he'd been homeless for three years, had never really worked with the case manager, but he said, I don't set up a tent. I, I just don't really want to attract 
attention and I just move around all the time. He has a phone. Right. So that'll make it much easier for a case manager to stay in touch with him and things like that. But like in most cases would never have been found uh, in the first place. And so what did we do? When you first came into office, your your district had none of these, no resources to go out and make those initial connections. It had some, like every part of the city and every part of the county, it had some of these resources available. But the reality is that even with the investments that we've made in hiring more outreach workers, and there's hundreds more than there were when I first started looking at this issue in 2014, even now... There is not enough outreach workers and there's not enough management of those outreach workers to ensure that you're getting coverage of an entire geographic area regularly. And so what we did was to make sure that we hired teams that could go out across the entire district and that we put into place some kind of accountability mechanism that ensured that these teams were going out to visit encampments and visit people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And that just takes time. That's a system and that you have to build up that system and put that system in place. So step two, once you talk to someone, is now, now you're connected. You Now you have to get enrolled into the system. Because the way LA works, you can't access any of our higher level services, and in, in particular shelter, like any city-run shelter, without being enrolled with a case manager. And these are people who work with service providers, like the big nonprofits that support the homelessness uh, infrastructure in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and also LASA, our public city county authority, and and they can access what's called HMIS, which is the Homeless Management Information System, where you can see someone's entire case file, like if they're already working with a case manager, where they're at with a shelter referral or anything like that. The, the, the council staff, nobody in an elected office can see any of that. Only a case manager can see it. The, w- talk about the process for getting someone enrolled like it's a there's multiple interviews there's well yeah your case manager has to come and talk to you and do a survey and right now that survey that they're doing to get you enrolled in the system is really long i think last time i heard it was like 40 pages if you printed it out it's a very long survey can take over an hour to sit there and do it and so you have to really find the time and have that relationship with the case manager so that they can they can get you enrolled. Find the location. If you're under like an allowed overpass or something. Yeah, you have to go to a quieter location. And if it takes more than one visit, then they have to find you again to do the survey. And I have met multiple people who said, oh yeah, I started it and never finished it because they just never went back to, the case manager never went back to the site and actually got people enrolled. Right. If someone's really mobile, if someone's moving around a lot, that makes it extra hard to... You make that first contact. Now you bring a case manager out. If it takes two uh, sessions or something like that to, to put all the information in, uh, you and if you end up moving to a different area, you might never see that case manager again. Uh, right. So and and yeah, if you just happen, for example, to be working with a team that's contracted by a council office, mm-hmm. and you happen to move across a council district boundary, mm-hmm. then you are very likely never to see that case manager again. How right. would? Why would they go there? Yeah. It's just not within their jurisdiction. And so yeah. it's it's very hard. But like, like we were saying, there are way, way more of these people out in the field so now than there were just a few years ago. Yeah. And that is thanks to Measure H funding for the most part and funding that came directly from the city mm-hmm. to invest in our outreach network. When I first started 
looking at the issue of homelessness in Los Angeles in 2014, I found that the city and county together were only paying for a couple of dozen outreach workers for a population of of unhoused people that was very large. It was tens of thousands of people large, even then. We passed Measure H in 2017. And Measure H is a, a quarter cent sales tax in the county. And thanks to the dollars from that measure, we're actually able to fund a lot more of these outreach workers. So as long as you're able to manage them effectively and make sure that they're going out regularly to the places where they're supposed to go, you can get people enrolled regularly. And that's the goal. And not to be confused with HHH, which was for housing. Yes, H was, was for services. Yes, HHH right. was for housing. We try to make it as easy as possible for people yeah, to follow. so easy. Okay, so step three is getting what we call document ready. And that's the term that we well, use. Well, we don't call it that. <laughs> I definitely say document ready all the time now. Now you do. Well, we didn't invent the we term. We didn't before. <laughs> it was nothing I would have ever understood. Yeah. But um, it's a term that we use basically that like all your papers are lined up for whatever services that you're trying to access. A lot of people need their ID. ID is so easy to lose, gets stolen, gets thrown out, whatever, on the street. So some people just need to like... Go to the DMV, you get a voucher for a free ID replacement. Birth certificate is harder, but lots of people need that. If it's a birth certificate in a different country, that at some point it becomes almost impossible. Some benefits or medical documentation of some kind. But uh, a shelter referral, I think, is the, the big one that a case manager fills out for you and they refer you to a specific shelter option whether in the area and a different area, sort of depending on what you need. And once you have a referral to a shelter, does that mean you can only go to that shelter? You, well, you can refer to multiple shelters at once, but you definitely need to a, you need a referral to that shelter to get into that shelter. And so for the most part in Los Angeles, you can't just walk up to a shelter and go inside. None and of the city shelters, yeah. And that's, I think, something that people don't always understand about about homelessness is that you can't just walk into a shelter any night when you need it. You really have to go through this process of doing your enrollment in the system and then putting all your documentation together, getting your case manager to refer you to that shelter. And then finally, when that shelter has an opening, which may take a while, mm -hmm. and we are at full capacity right now on most of our shelters, that's when you can go indoors right, to a temporary shelter. Do you think that the no walk-in shelter thing is because... We kind of opened up this process and started building shelter beds when there were so many people that it just like was it wasn't feasible to have so few beds for so many people and just say anyone could walk in and get a bed. We needed this prioritization system. We need to be like triaging resources. Like, do you do you think that's why that that there isn't a walk in option? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there is certainly ways to get help urgently, particularly if you're a woman facing a domestic violence situation or if you're a family with children, there are ways, or if you're a youth, um, there are ways to call people and, and and make it so that you can get help. More quickly. More quickly. Yes. Not always the same day, but much more quickly than if you were going through the, the process in the traditional way. But yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. And I don't know how, for example, how it would work differently in a city like New York, which has 
all of the shelter beds it needs by law for every person who's experiencing homelessness, do they have a walk-up policy? Right. Or do you have to go through the same process there as well? I don't know. Well, well let's talk about this. Like, step four is actually getting into the shelter. So, like, uh, talking about that, I can see why there is no walk-up version because I know at all of our shelter sites, it's certainly in our district, and I think basically anywhere in the city, they're at capacity and if beds open up, they have a list. There they have is a wait like, list. They have a wait list. Yeah. And so the idea of some anyone and being that a, wait list is the set of referrals that people have made. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so if someone were to walk up and be able to access a bed, that would interfere with the process of getting the people that have been waiting on the wait list. So like it's because we're so beyond capacity that we we just have to rely on the referrals and the lists and and all that stuff. So. In general, I mean, talk about the different kinds of shelters that we have available to people in the city. Well, we have a few different kinds. During Mayor Garcetti's time, he really invested in these congregate shelters called a bridge home. And these were um, every council district committed to building a bridge home shelter in their district. And so I believe there is at least 14, yeah, maybe more. There's not one in Council District 12, I believe. Is there? Uh, there is one now, the Trebek Center. Okay, That's all right. That's a, a bridge home site. You and I talk about this a lot. That it's, <laughs> So the, the shelters are called a bridge home. So everyone just says, the a bridge home. <laughs> which which it, always makes me giggle. Yeah, it's like... It, it's Can just, we go to the a bridge home? It's amazing how widely adopted <laughs> this has been. Everyone refers to it as an NABH shelter. The right. A stands An for... A bridge uh, home. Yes. <laughs> the a bridge home. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing that it, that really did take off. Those are congregate shelters. Yeah. And there are other congregate shelters as well, some that are not funded by the city at all. So things like the Union Rescue Mission mm-hmm. and some of the the missions that have come out of more kind of religious organizations. These are congregate shelters. These are shelters where you go in and you don't have your own room. You're in a shared space, potentially with a number of beds in it. Maybe you have some cubicles. Pretty much all the abridged homes have a cubicle space, have a little storage area. Right. uh, But it really varies where, uh, like, sometimes the city opens emergency shelters and, like, rec and parks facilities. And those are pretty much, like, cots. Cots on a bed. mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, we we had one in our site. It was an emergency winter shelter site that we had in, in, in the valley. And it was all, it was really well subscribed. Yep. Um. And it was just a congregate shelter, just a cot mm-hmm. with a bunch of other cots in a big uh, rec center uh, community room. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of our beds. We also now have, thanks to different kinds of investments being made in interim shelter, we now have non-congregate shelter spaces. So these include basically motel and hotel sites that are being funded through the Mayor's Inside Safe program. We have a long-term lease on a hotel site in our district. There's another one. Actually, we have two hotel sites in our district, but these offer much more privacy. These are spaces where you have to either share your room with one person, potentially, or you get a room to yourself and a private bathroom. There's also tiny homes. So tiny homes are these shelters, which are these plastic cabins. Sometimes they're called cabin communities. And 
they are set up, you can set them up in a parking lot, you can set them up in any space that has some basic utilities running through it. And they also offer some amount of privacy. They can be, you can put one person inside them and some in some places they're large enough to accommodate two mm-hmm. people. They usually small, don't but, have yeah. they usually don't have a bathroom attached. Not attached, but they have bathrooms. They have bathroom on facilities site. on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is uh it offers a door that you can close, which and I think climate controlled. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, so you have your own AC and things like that. And so I think these are different levels of shelters. There's also domestic violence shelters, there's family shelters. We have a shelter um we used to have a shelter in our district. I lost it in redistricting, which was a, a women's shelter that also had, it was a dormitory style shelter. So you had rooms and shared bathrooms for each floor. So there's a whole plethora of shelter options that are available under the category of in-room shelter. When I'm talking to people on the street, a lot of times I'll say how, I'll lay out all the different options that we can refer people into and say, if you want to get into a place as quickly as possible, the uh, the congregate shelters are easier to get into. And I think for for women in general, uh, there are more options for getting inside more quickly just because I think the ratio of beds that are dedicated for women in the city, compa- like proportional to the number of women on the street is is lower right. than it is for, for men. But if you want to wait a, a little longer because you need a room to yourself or in a lot of cases, couples that need to stay together. Right. The, uh, those are the hotel rooms, tiny homes, things like that. The the hotel rooms being the most popular option. And for families, sometimes these aren't shelter sites that are run by the city or the county. Yes. You just get a motel voucher and yes. you can go to any hotel and utilize that voucher and, and pay for a room. Yeah. And so that's a place where you're going where you can have a room to yourself a regular motel room um, that is an interim option, but there's very, very few motel vouchers out there. Right. And they're pretty much only for families. And the flip side is if you are a family, you cannot access any of these other city facilities that we're talking about, unless it's a dedicated family shelter. Right. They don't have the resources to be supporting both like families with kids and babies and things like that. And, uh, and, and just adults. So let's talk about something we talk about a lot, which is a very backward piece of this process that in most cases what shelters you can access a case manager is allowed to refer you to depends on what council district you happened to land in and it might be that the closest shelter to you one that is in the area that you know best and you might know people in it and that's the one you want to get into your case manager is not allowed to refer you into it because it happens to be over, over the border right. of the council district. And we've seen this happen over and over again that because you're in outside of the jurisdiction that operates the shelter, that you never get referrals to it. When we took over certain parts of, um, uh, certain new parts of the district during redistricting, we realized there were people who lived literally down the street from our abridge home and had never been referred there because they were in another council district. But now that they were in ours, we could refer them and actually get them indoors, which we did successfully. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, if someone says, I need to get into this shelter for this, this, this reason, I need access to this hospital or I have connections in this area, whatever it is, you have to ask the other district. Ask actually means asking another council member often, right? I have made those asks, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's always like, 
everyone has huge needs in their own district. So why sure. would you put someone from another council district above your own list of people that you're waiting to get into? Right. And it's a really, really bad system. This is not how we should be doing it. It should not be based on individual asks between council members to get into a shelter. It sh we should have a system where you know how many beds are available in every single interim shelter site that the city is supporting and that people go into those uh, shelters based on the proximity to where they are and their specific needs, whether it be that they have a pet or that they have another partner that they want to go in with. But that's just not how the system works right now, which means that you end up with empty beds. Um, it's designed in a way to generate empty beds. And that is not good for anybody. Next up, you're, you're in shelter. It's a chance for a lot of people to kind of take a little bit of a breath. Next step is getting into housing. And this is a long step. It's much longer than it should be. And it's kind of the one right now that is, is, is slowing down the system the most. Uh, talk about what, what it means to get into housing uh, from, from shelter. Well, we have um, a limited number of, when you're in an interim shelter site, you're in it, you can resolve uh, or you can move out of that shelter site through a number of options. You can get a voucher, uh, an emergency housing voucher that was offered by the federal government, a Section 8 voucher, a project-based voucher that's connected to a particular building. Um, and you can get a voucher and match that voucher to a unit and move into that unit, right? So let's say you get a Section 8 voucher or an emergency housing voucher. And getting those means usually someone, staff on the site of the shelter are filling out an application for you. Maybe your case manager. Maybe a case manager or, yes, maybe your case manager is filling out that application for you or a housing navigator, right? Right, um, yes. and And getting you, in, getting you that voucher issued. Once you have that voucher in hand, it's now up to you and your case manager or a housing navigator, if you're lucky to get it, this is a relatively new category of um, service providers that mm -hmm. are out there that work with a with clients who have these vouchers to try and match the voucher to a unit on the private rental market. So you go out there with that with that voucher. You look at different apartments that you can pay for that the voucher cost covers, and you try and get into those units. Sometimes landlords will say no. They'll have application forms for that apartment unit and they'll say, we don't want a voucher holder. Mm -hmm. Which it's they're not, not legally allowed to say. Yes, but, but yeah. they don't explicitly say it, but mm -hmm. they- Sometimes you know. they do. <laughs> right, exactly. It's supposed to be illegal, but it ha still happens. Yeah. But let's say the landlord says, yes, you still have to go through the process of inspecting that unit. You have to make sure it matches what the voucher will actually fund. And then after all of that happens, you can move into that unit. And in finding the unit, going through that matching process, going through the inspection process can take weeks, even months. We have voucher holders who have had a voucher for months who have not been able to actually find a unit. And looking for those units out there in the market, that's not easy to do. So unless mm -hmm. you have support, if you're in an interim shelter site and you're looking for units, how do you get out to the unit to view it? How do you get out to the unit to talk to a landlord? Like these are all logistical challenges that the system has to be set up to solve. And right now it's really not. And the staff at the site is saying, okay, how am I going to get this person? I have the, all these people on the 
shelter site that I need to like be available for. There's meals all the time. There's like different issues that you're helping people with on the site. And you also have to drive off the premises to take this one person to go visit this apartment by this time. And throughout this whole voucher process, the, the clock is, is ticking. They, all of these are, you only have them for a limited amount of time. Right. And when the clock is up, you lose your voucher. And it's, I, I don't think it's a, um, you don't go to the back of the line necessarily. If you had one previously, I think it's a little more easy. To, no, to, I didn't know that. But it, it is still a, a, a long process. You do have to start over to an extent. And the challenge for Los Angeles is that that voucher has been issued to an individual. And if that individual is not able to match that to a unit and move into that unit, mm-hmm. the city of Los Angeles loses that voucher as well. That's a major issue. So we have to make sure that we are making these matches so that we can use up all of the vouchers that are allocated to us by the federal government through the emergency housing voucher program or through the Section 8 program. Um, And studies have shown that up to 25% of Section 8 vouchers uh, that are issued, they don't ever find a match. Um, With emergency housing vouchers, those dollars go back to the federal government. Yeah. And in LA, I think that rate is uh, sometimes even higher of vouchers not getting utilized. And I feel like in this, we're in a situation where we can't afford not to utilize these right. vouchers. So what are we going to do? Yeah. Now, if you get a voucher, by the way, you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Everyone else is making do with other kinds of options that you're using to get out of that interim shelter into your long-term option. So another option that people have is something called time-limited subsidies. So this can be a rapid rehousing voucher um, or other forms of support that you can get that will pay for your apartment's rent or pay for part of that rent over a short period of time, a set period of time. A Section 8 voucher is in perpetuity as long as you meet those income requirements. A time-limited subsidy is exactly that. It will expire in two years, and at the end of that two-year period, you're expected to be able to pay for that apartment by yourself. Mm -hmm. But even there, you still need to do the same thing, which is find a unit and move into that unit so that you can utilize a time-limited subsidy. And so the same challenges of finding that unit remain. And it's hard for somebody who's in an interim shelter site to go out and find those units. But a time-limited subsidy is better than nothing. Oftentimes, what people are doing in an interim shelter site, if they're moving out of it, is potentially even being reunited with their family. So if you have family members who are willing to take you in and who want to take you in and that you want to go to, you can make uh, you can get support to actually travel um, to that family. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can move out of an interim site, but all of them require an incredible amount of work. They require case management. They require support for that individual to be able to both secure that option and then to utilize that option by matching it to an actual apartment. And that system is not working that great yet. Mm -hmm. And we saw that when we had our last committee meeting, Um, we talked about the inside safe numbers. We're supposed to be getting regular reports about the Inside Safe program to the Housing and Homelessness Committee, which I chair in the city. And so we had a report that said that the Inside Safe program has housed now about 1,400 people, let's say. Sheltered. Sheltered, um, 1,400 people. So that means moving them from encampments on the street into motel and hotel rooms that are paid for through this big program. But how many of them, now it's been six months since this program has started, how many of them have actually moved on to permanent housing? We learned in that meeting that that number, according to the CAL, was only about 77. And that is a shockingly small number. Well, shockingly, I think, to... To everyone else. To everyone else. Yes. I think to people that have seen the system work, 
77 people out of 1,400 over the course of six five, months. six months. Doesn't feel like. Not that surprising. Right. Unfortunately. But, but I think yeah. it's really important to look at those numbers in the face and to understand that our system needs to function better in order for us to effectively address homelessness. If we are unable to move people from interim housing sites into permanent housing more quickly than that, then we will spend in perpetuity on these interim housing sites and we will not see a transformation on our streets. We will not see more people moving indoors. And I think we have to make sure that 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 system of moving people from interim into permanent is working better. Because the costs of shelter can really, really balloon, uh, especially if it's just one person occupying a a a room, a bed, whatever it is for a really long period. And for a city like Los Angeles, we have to be very careful because for for interim housing sites, we pay the costs as a city. So the mayor's program is being paid for through the Inside Safe uh, budget, which we approved $250 million um, in this last budget cycle for. And uh, our interim housing hotel sites are being paid for through a variety of means, but are coming through our, our homelessness dollars, our general kind of city budget. And so every dollar that's going to these is not going to other services that the city could be funding. But- Our permanent housing, whether it be project-based vouchers, whether it be Section 8 vouchers, whether it be emergency housing vouchers, all of that is coming from the federal government. So it really behooves us as a city to move people quickly from interim housing that we're paying for into permanent housing that the federal government is paying for or into rehab beds or mental health services that the county is paying for. Mm -hmm. But we're not doing that effectively right now. So I'm hopeful that we can make a change to that system that's going to make it work much better. Right. So- Getting into housing, something we, I mean, not to be like too bleak about it, like I've seen way more people get to that point in, in, in recent years than we did in years before that. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people move into their permanent housing, which yeah. is great. People that I knew on the street for a really long time getting indoors. Absolutely. And we've seen a lot more of that because our HHH investments, yes. the how permanent supportive housing investments that we made starting in 2016 when we approved that bond those are now finally bearing fruit. So those mm-hmm. units are opening up and we can move people into those units. There's all kinds of uh, new units coming online regularly and that's really exciting. But I think an underappreciated kind of last step of this is after people get into housing is is helping people stay in their mm-hmm. housing. And that that is easier with HHH units. Those are for the most part permanent supportive housing, which has on-site services that are basically whatever it is, like general mental health treatment, counseling, like things that are designed to help people settle into a place and 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 stay there permanently. But in a lot of cases, we are relying on the private market. And so ha- having people stay in that housing is more difficult. They're just as vulnerable to eviction as any other person, if not more so. Uh, if a building owner just wants to get out of the business entirely, sell it to someone else who's converting the property or whatever, we see people who went through this incredibly arduous process of getting into permanent housing. And then a year later, if that, they just end up losing it and then being back on the street. And even beyond that, I think there's the step of someone's now moved into permanent housing, usually from a a place where there were a bunch of other people around one way or another, whether it was at a shelter site, an encampment, whatever it is, 
now you're kind of on your own. Right. And whoever you was, may have lost touch with your case manager, whoever is helping you through this process, who has to move on to at some point has to move on to new clients, right? Has to like keep the system moving with new people. But figuring out, I think, as a city, how we keep stay in house. touch with people yeah. as much as possible, give people places, even if we're not able to go to every one of their apartments and check in on them all the time. Uh, give people places to go where they can like continue to have some kind of community with people and things like that. Um, I think is at some point something that we're going to have to build out a little more as a, as a city. Absolutely. And all of this seems really daunting, Mm -hmm. but I also think that this is maybe the first time in the city's history that I feel like we have a huge amount of, momentum to really take on these problems. It's not just one person talking about it. It's not just one agency talking about it. It's a whole lot of people who have leadership roles in the city, including our mayor and uh, council members who are really, really focused on this um, and a strong partnership with the county. And I feel like we can actually build up a better system right now. It's just going to take an enormous amount of work because what is needs to change right now is bureaucracy. What needs to change is bureaucratic processes. And doing that work of changing those processes is really hard. It doesn't generate headlines. It is often not that not that uh, fruitful. But I think with steady bureaucratic change, I think we can actually see results. And that's what I'm hopeful we're moving into now. Another thing we've talked about a lot recently is when when we were first doing outreach as volunteers, the only place that we had to refer people to was a congregate shelter in Bell, right, California, which is like 12, 15 miles away from where, where we were doing outreach. And that was in 2017, 2018. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. So the gap between that and what we have now, what is that level of progress between now and six years from now? It's exciting to think like if we're on that pace, which it's been in kind of fits and starts, but like if we're on like generally that kind of pace of growing this system and, and these resources, it's it's an exciting prospect of how much more we could have. And we look back on this time and say like, oh, that was that was nothing. You're right. And we also have examples from other cities where we've seen real progress. So, for example, I've been reading a lot about the city of Houston Mm -hmm. and how much progress they've made in addressing homelessness. And they didn't invest that much as a city in this issue. What they did was do much better in terms of utilizing their federal dollars by forcing bureaucratic change. And I think that we have the opportunity to do that now, and we have to. We have a much bigger problem here in terms of just the size of of our unhoused population. We also have a much bigger problem in terms of or a much bigger situation in terms of the num- amount of resources that are coming here. So it's going to be harder. It's a bigger system. Yeah. But I think it gives us a lot of hope in terms of how we can change it. That's uh, a lot of what's going on on the city side. Do you want to talk about what it's like campaigning again? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I can't believe that it's already campaign season. I feel like I just got here. Two and a half years has felt incredibly long, but it has also felt like the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Now I'm back in it. I'm running for office again. I um to run, you know, running for the seat again. Election is the primary date, which is early March of 2024. It's been 
interesting to be a candidate and to be doing the work at the same time and also to be an active parent. It's been a huge amount of work. Um, And when I decided to run for office in 2019, I quit my job. And I was just running. I was running for 15 months. And that's all I did. And now I'm running for office and I'm running this council district and a wonderful large staff and responding to all of the issues of that council district. I'm chairing this big committee that's dealing with city issues on a holistic level. I'm on two different boards. I serve on the Air Quality Management District, and I also serve on La Casa, which is the new Affordable Housing Services Agency, which is countywide. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a huge amount of work, and it's been a totally different thing from my first experience. So I just started. I just launched. So we'll see how it goes. We'll keep checking in. But it's a totally different experience. I think I heard you say that it's like, it's kind of like doing it for the first time, just because when you ran the first time, and I remember like we knew nothing. And so a lot of the processes that people tell you about now, like you, you talk to that, like you apply for this endorsement, that endorsement. We didn't do any of that. No. We did nothing. And we didn't work with a regular dem- a consultant. Mm-hmm. So the system here in Los Angeles is that most people who are running for office work with a a, a political consultant mm-hmm. who kind of helps them set their strategy and figure out who to apply to for endorsements, how to send out mail, who to send that mail to, how much mail to send out. If there is a field program, a lot of people don't even do a field program. Mm-hmm. They set up that field program. But we didn't have a consultant working with us. It was just you and me and a few other people uh, kind of trying to figure it out for ourselves. And so we didn't do most of the things that a traditional campaign does. Mm -hmm. But now we're doing that in addition to doing everything else that we did the first time. So that's also going to be extra work, which is going to be interesting. Yeah. Every single time I've gotten an endorsement this time, I have felt so touched (laughs) that that people would actually- everyone else thinks just for an incumbent in a lot of cases that- It's assumed that you get an endorsement and every single time anybody agrees to endorse me, I'm like, me? (laughs) You want to endorse me? I'm so grateful, so grateful, because we really did not have anyone behind us last time. So it's really, it is very different, but Mm -hmm. my approach to it has been the same. Yeah. I also think about making the decision to get into the race last time and thinking about what I would have decided if I had known then what I know now about Mm -hmm. council races. When I got into the race in, when I launched in August, I think I was running against someone who had already raised seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, which was the most. And ever. he ended up going on to raise the most amount of money in a primary of any city council member in history. So if I not had, including independent expenditure money, which was many more hundreds of thousands of correct. dollars on top of that. So if I had known then what I know now. I think I probably would have looked at that and thought, why do this? That's what you were meant to do. That's why <laughs> it was that much money. It was it was for people to look at it and say, oh, we're not going to never mind. Yeah. yeah. But we were so stupid yeah. <laughs> about how this process worked <laughs> that we were like, great, this is this is going to work out. Fine. Yeah. So. But it's you're not taking any corporate money. Yeah. No 
developer money, oil and gas money, same as last time. And yes. So it's so I'm never going to post those kinds of numbers, yeah. but I'm hopeful that we'll post a lot of people power. Yeah. Like just like we did before. Council recess is over. What's coming up with council coming back? Well, we have a new council member from yes. CD6. Yes. Um, council member Imelda, Imelda Padilla. Yes. New committee assignments. Some new committee. Yes. Some mm-hmm. new committee assignments, some change ups. Mm-hmm. I'm still you the same. You didn't change at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm still the same, but I'm really excited. We also are going to be making some big moves on the ad hoc committee on governance reform. So that means by the end, over the next couple of months, we're going to be figuring out what exactly we're going to put on the ballot to expand council and to put an independent redistricting process in place. And let's just kind of establish what, what what's in the works. Like something is going on the ballot. For sure. Which would never have been, it certainly was very unlikely as recently as eight months ago. But now it's basically a foregone conclusion that something is going on the ballot that will, if approved by voters, increase the size of the council. We don't know exactly to how many seats. Right now it's 15. The districts are the largest in the country. They are very unwieldy to govern in a lot of ways. They haven't changed since the 20s. People will at least have the opportunity to have smaller districts and a more potentially more representative council. In the last charter reform Mm -hmm. effort, Mm -hmm. they actually did want to expand the council then too. And they put two options in front of voters to expand the council to 20 and 25, if I'm remembering. uh, Yeah, 21 or 25. 21 or 25, right, because you need an even number, uh, an odd number. Both expansions failed. And the reason I was told by people who were heading up that charter reform uh, commission was because voters definitively did not want more politicians. Yeah. Now I think- Doesn't sound good. Doesn't but, sound good. Mm-hmm. I think now we're in a slightly different position. I still think politicians are probably not everyone's favorite people, but I do think people recognize that you need smaller districts, smaller constituencies, um, so that you can serve people better. Less so consolidated power for each individual. Less consolidated person. power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really excited that this time it will get on the ballot and that it will pass, um, and that the voters will will ensure that it passes. But. I think it's going to be a big change for Los Angeles and really exciting because this is something I talked about all the time on the campaign trail about how small the council was and how much power an individual council member has. And it's so exciting to be in the council and to chip away at those powers in ways that will make the functioning of the city so much better. It's going to be exciting. Bye. Bye.